This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great tasting all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Elizabeth Namayaro grew up in Zimbabwe and experienced a severe drought in her village at eight years old. This drought led to United Nations aid workers to give her a bowl of porridge that would ultimately save her life. This experience would also guide her into a career as a humanitarian. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, Elizabeth Namayaro reflects on growing up in Zimbabwe, why she became a humanitarian, and her work at the United Nations. Hi, Elizabeth. Hey, Carlos. How are you? I am good. I'm good. Where are you today? I'm currently in Pasadena today. You do not look like the little old lady in Pasadena. (laughs) Because it's not my usual home. So I'm usually based in New York City and I'm just, I happen to be on the West Coast for some work related things. Nice. And are you a West Coast person? If you had your druthers, would you live in a warm place like California or or is New York the right place for you? Ah, now Carlos, that's a tough question. If I could live in a warm place, it would be in Africa. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, nicely. And and would it be Zim or would it be somewhere else? Definitely Zim. But then, you know, for me, though, because I've traveled pretty much across the entire continent with my work. And so I find that I always find home in any part of Africa. So it wouldn't really matter as long as I was on the continent. But I have to be New York because of my work with the U.N., Okay, now it's time for me to quiz you about the continent because you said you've been to so many places. For $1,000, who are the nicest people in Africa? Ah, All Africans are the nicest people in Africa. (laughs) (laughs) Spoken like a diplomat. I love that. Okay, okay. The right answer are Ghanaians, I think. I think Ghanaians are the nicest in Africa and the world, maybe. That, That is also, I know a lot of people say that, but it's also quite true. And I also think Zimbabweans are really nice people. I mean, not because I'm from there, but I just think, you know, we're really peace-loving people and we're very spiritual people. And, you know, we, we just want to be and not go through a lot of conflict and turmoil. So 
But I think generally Africans are warm people. You know, I find, you know, having traveled also around the world and meeting different cultures, there's just this African hospitality that you can't get anywhere else. Best food, best food you found on the continent. Where's the best food? Sadza, Zimbabwe, my, <laughs> my, my home country, because I grew up with it. But if you love spicy food and like really creative dishes, then you have to be, you know, somewhere in the Central African Republic, DRC is amazing food. Um, so it just depends. But again, I think that's also what's special, right? Because it is just so diverse. You know, you could be eating, you know, injera pancakes in Ethiopia, uh, which is completely different to couscous in Morocco, which is completely different to sadza, which is like a, like a it's like a maize meal, grits kind of thing for Americans. So it's just, it's quite diverse. And, and that's what's nice about it. Okay, I must ask you the most beautiful place you've ever seen in Africa. Hmm, that's a good question. Beautiful place. I would have to say maybe, I don't know. See, it's just, it's difficult to choose, Carlos. These are tough questions. But uh, because we have the, one of the uh, natural seven wonders of the world, the Victoria Falls is stunning. Because I know in America you have the Niagara Falls, and I don't want to start any competition, but Victoria Falls is quite special. And so that's on the border of Zambia and Zimbabwe. Do you know what? That is always my answer. I tell people it's the most beautiful place I've seen in the world is Victoria Falls. And I often think about floating down the Zambezi River. I, I had Bob Marley playing in my ears, and it's still the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. So I, uh, I really I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. Um, uh, Elizabeth, where did you grow up within Zim? So I grew up in a small village uh, called Goromonzi. And um, I was raised there by my grandmother. And, and it was just such a little, you know, it was a small little community and very special because of that. And when you say small, how small was it? So I would say roughly 100 people live there uh, in, my, in my sort of immediate community. And what's also interesting about that is that it was mostly my grandmother's relatives. You know, my grandmother, who I call Gogo in my language, raised me. And so it was her brothers and siblings and cousins and her own children were part of that community, were my uncles and aunts. And it was just such a you know, very tight, neat community. And um, even just like simple things, like what it meant for us to be part of a community, our daily greeting, uh, we, we say to each other, which is Shona language, which is my language. There's sort of two national languages spoken in my country, Shona and Debele, and I'm the Shona tribe. And so, and what this literally translates to is, I am well as long as you are well, right? And it's this recognition that we are part of a community, that we are all connected. And if one of us is unwell, then none of us are unwell. And so it was just really lovely. And it also meant doing all the chores together. We farmed together, we harvested together, we ate together. It was a bit intense, but it was beautiful. And how did you come, Elizabeth, to be raised by your grandmother, if I may ask? So my mom had me when she was very young and she couldn't take care of me. And she left me with my gogo when I was about one year old. 
And I actually didn't know up until the age of five that my gogo was not my mother because I thought she was my mother and she had raised me as, as if, you know, she called me her dear child. And so I assumed that she was my mother. And so she had left me with my gogo who then raised me. And in retrospect, what a beautiful thing. Uh, it was obviously jarring at the age of five finding out that she wasn't my mother because I so wanted it to be my mother. So that's, that's what happened. And how did you find out at five that she was your, your go-go and not your mother? So as an African child, and there's so many girls in my village, you know, we were responsible for doing all the chores. And one of my biggest chores was tying up go-go's goats in the bush. So every morning I would get up at five o'clock, we had 11 goats, and I would take them you know, into the bush and tie them up so that they wouldn't wander off and eat our crops. And one day at the age of five, I was tying up the goats. I finished tying up the goats. I saw this young boy who was from the next village and I was just so happy and excited to see a young person. So I reached out to him and I I chased after him and I said, hello, my brother, because again, we even if you don't know the person in my culture, they are still your, your, your brother and your sister. And he says something to me that kind of like really surprised me. You know, he says something like, what's up, Nerera, which literally means what's up, often child. And I thought, hang on a second, why is he calling me that? I'm not an orphan. Like I have my mother who's at home right now. And so this boy is clearly confused. But then I went back home and I saw my gogo, who at that point I still thought she was my mother. And I asked her why I told her the encounter. I said, this boy called me an orphan. Why did you call me that? And in a very strange way, because my gogo loved to teach me things. You know, she's this woman full of so much wisdom. And she refused to answer the question. And I thought, that's crazy. And that just made me more curious. I was already such a curious child anyway. And I was like, why won't she answer this question? And I kept nudging and nudging and nudging. And it took a few days actually for her to want to talk about it. And I remember one day we were in our field, we're taking a break as we did, you know, when the sun was really hot and would sit underneath this tree and would usually eat like boiled sweet potato or boiled maize. Uh, and I asked again, I said, why did the boy call me an orphan? And it was just really hard for her to explain. And she told me that actually she wasn't my mother. She was my grandmother. And that's when I learned about my mother and how she had left me, like abandoned me with her because she couldn't take care of me and how my gogo had raised me as her own. And Carlos, at this point, my heart like literally broke, you know? It's like I get emotional even talking about it now. It just broke because I just so wanted her to be my mother. But then now there was this whole other puzzle for my young mind to solve for. It's like, who is this mother person who left me? And then I also found out that I had a father. And and for me, as a five-year-old, I'd never had a father before. And I got so confused. Like, what does a father do? What do I need a father for? And, And it was just... Yeah, it was a very emotional moment when I found out. 
And so where does a young one go from there? Was that something that stayed with you deeply for a while? Did it pass very quickly? Did you get all the answers you needed in a matter of a week or two? What what happened to the little five-year-old? I can see her now, or at least I think I can see her now. (laughs) It, It took a lot because there was one aspect, you know, the father person, uh, I just, I didn't know what to do with the father person. My grandmother didn't really want, my gogo didn't want to talk about him because also he had made my mother pregnant out of wedlock. And so in, in also finding out all these things, I then realized that I was a sin, right? Because in my culture, if you're born out of wedlock, you are seen as a sin. And I went to church all the time with my grandmother And again, it confused me because I thought a sin was something that you did. Like, how could I be a sin? I hadn't even done anything. And so my gogo had also decided to discount my father because of all the hurt he had caused to the family. So in my mind, I was like, I don't know how to solve for this father person. Gogo doesn't want to talk about this father person. I'm going to forget this father person. But then this mother, you know, am I in my language, I just wanted to meet her. Like, I didn't understand why she had abandoned me, why she had left me. Was it because I was a sin? Could she ever forgive me? And so that became a constant prayer to God. I would pray every single night. I just want to meet this Amaye person. I wanted to see me. I wanted to love me. And so that, that didn't disappear at all until much later, until the day when I actually met her. And then everything changed. How old were you when you met her? So I met her when I was 10 years old. And prior to me meeting her, a lot of things had happened. So a severe drought hit my village at the age of eight. We had grown up, as I say to you, with just an abundance of food. You know, we lived off our land and there was a dignity to that. We knew exactly where our meal was going to come from. We knew that, you know, none of us would ever go without food because we were farming together. We're sharing the little that we had with each other. But then at the age of eight, a severe drought hit my country and of course my village. And literally there was nothing to eat or drink. And I had my sort of really big moment, a life-threatening moment where I actually thought I was going to die. I collapsed on the ground. I hadn't eaten for a few days. And in this moment, just the most incredible miracle happened. This African woman, this African girl who worked for the United Nations found me and she gave me a bottle of porridge that literally saved my life. And when I actually found out who she was and it took in a few years later, that was the moment that sparked my dream to become a humanitarian, by the way. And I remember thinking, I just want to be like her, right? Because I too want to save the lives of others in a similar way that my life had been saved. So that had already happened. And then two years later, another drought came. And this time my gogo realized that she couldn't take care of me, that I was going to die. And I think there was a fear that I might die and that's when my Amai came into my life and she arrived one day. Gogo and I were in our small round hut. By the way, this is my home, Carlos. This is, oh. this is literally the hut in which I grew up. Wow. And so we were inside this hut. It was in the middle of another drought. It was so hot outside. Uh, what most people don't realize, like what it actually means to live during a drought, it's so hot. So you try and stay 
in inside as much as possible. We were there trying to create food packets, you know, so we had received some beans, dried beans from a fellow aunt in the village, and we were kind of trying to create these small packets so that we'd ration our food. And suddenly there was a voice outside and like we always do in our village, I thought it was just another aunt from another village or even from our village. And I was gleefully asking her to come in and she walks into this hut and she sits down and I noticed something strange. I noticed that my gogo was just the most warmest person and doesn't really look at this woman and doesn't greet this who I thought was an aunt. And she sits down and she has brought this lovely, you know, goodies from us from the city. I realized she's not from my village. And, and I'm just so happy that, oh, you know, we have food. And I almost, I thank God in my young mind. And I think that's another angel, just like he sent an angel to me when I was eight years old to give me a bottle of porridge. God has sent another angel because she had bread and tea and sugar things that we, again, we're not having access to during the drought. And I then found out that she was my mother and she was coming to take me away from my village. And it was terrible. I was going to say, so how, how, you did not feel good about that? No, no, I did not feel good about it. And also, then I also felt guilty, right? Because I'd been praying to God for Amayamai, my mother, to come find me. And I had fantasized, I had all this vision of what it was going to feel like when I saw her. And I thought I was going to run into her arms and I was going to hold her so tight. And I was going to just tell her how much I love her. And she was going to tell me how much she loves me. And it was going to be this beautiful moment. And it was the opposite. Because then Gogo says, this is your Amai. And she's come to take you because I can't take care of you. And I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go. And she was now a stranger. And it felt like this dark angel that was coming to tear me away from everything that I've known and loved. And I couldn't imagine my life without Gogo. And she literally dragged me out of the heart. And I was crying and I was clinging on to Gogo. And interestingly enough, it was also the beginning of God's greatest miracle for me, because that also came with an opportunity to go to school, which is something that I had not really done in the village. And it opened, it made me into the person that I am today. Education became the key to everything that I've become. Elizabeth, how, when you first left with your mother, what happened? Were you in a car? Did you get on a bus? Did you get on a plane? Do you remember? Yes, no, we got on a bus, right? Because I lived in a village. My mother turns out, uh, I'd never met her before, but she had gone on. So she had, when she left me in the village, she had run off to the city with my father. And that's also a really remarkable story that even though they met each other when they were very young, and usually this kind of relationships don't last, right? They stayed together. They had moved to the city. They had then tried to find work. Both of them were not as educated, and so they were not able to find any decent work. My father went as a gardener, he was a milkman at some point, but they stayed together and they had three more children after me. I have a brother and two sisters, but because they were so impoverished, they lived in a township. 
And so we got on a bus from the village to the city, took another bus to the township, which was on the outskirts of Harare, which is the capital city of Zimbabwe. And so how soon do you begin to get comfortable with your mother? It takes a while because I arrive, because also just so many things happen, Carlos. So many things for, you know, for, for a young person. The first day when I arrive in my new home, my parents' home, I also then meet this Baba, which is the word for father in my language, this Baba person. And I never known what to do with him prior to leaving the village because I decided to forget about this Baba person. And then there he was sitting in this small little house, which was dimly lit because we got there. It was quite dark. It was already, you know, evening because it took a whole day for us to get to where we needed to be. And he's sitting there and I get to meet my siblings who were just like the most warmest and happiest kids. Like they literally like got up and threw their arms around me. And it was such a lovely moment for them. But I was just like, who are these children? And then there was this Baba person sitting uh, on this chair and he got up and he's, he's like, welcome home. And it was just so strange because even then I didn't quite know what to do with him. But then I remember thinking the whole time that I was just going to run away. I was going to go back. I was going to go run away and go back to my village and be with my gogo. Uh, but then I found out that, you know, I'd been enrolled in school and that, I think, changed my perspective. And I realized that this, this was a blessing. This was not something that I should be upset about. Yes, I was going to miss Gogo, but I loved being in school. I loved the possibility of learning new things. And so I decided that I was going to stay. I, I, I imagine all the different emotions that your Gogo must have felt uh, both pride and, and love and happiness and, and, and maybe sadness, given that you were so close to her, but maybe hope that something good would happen uh, with you now that you are with your, your sisters and your brother. Maybe something really, uh, maybe something good would happen. Um, what kind of a student, what kind of teenager did you turn into, Elizabeth? What were you like? I was, I know this sounds a little cliche, but I was very hardworking because I did appreciate, you know, when you, when you grow up without education and then you get it and you see what it's able to do for you, I became a very, very, I was, I loved school. I worked hard. Uh, I was very, still very inquisitive. You know, I was curious about the world not only in the world around me, but because education had expanded my horizon, I became also interested about other parts of the world. And at the age of 11, 10, 11, when, I, when I'd gone to school, I'd also then learned about the United Nations because I, you know, I'd gone with my parents. There's another part to this. I didn't actually end up staying with them all the time. I spent a year with them and then they ended up moving me to live with an aunt and an uncle in the city. And so at the age of 11, because I was going to school in the township and it was not the best of schools. And I was actually a really, really good student. And my parents, again, just back to understanding things in retrospect, they wanted nothing more than for me to have the best 
that they were not able to have the best education. And so at some point they realized that I needed to have much better education than the ones they were able to give me in, in this township. And so they sent me to live with, in, the, in the city with an aunt and uncle. And I found myself at a, at a private British school at the age of 11. And that also just elevated my understanding of what was possible. And that's when I found out about the United Nations for my uncle who was an economist and I just knew I needed to leave. So in my teens, all I was determined to do was to try and make it out of Africa and go to the UK and try and work for the United Nations. Um, so that's, that became the quest. And I was able to achieve that in my mid-20s. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O. TIKA.com. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Elizabeth, tell me a little bit about Zimbabwe. Um, what you don't know is that, um, do you know the word uh, rindai? Rindai? 
Yes. No. I know the word, but, but um, is it a person's name or is, is it just a word? It's a Shona word. Ex- explain to me. I think it means to safeguard or to protect, maybe. Ah, yes. It, it does mean that. Yes. It does. Yes. So I heard a lot about Zimbabwe uh, growing up because my family called me by that name ah. um, uh, growing up. And so I, I heard a lot about Zimbabwe, and I only got to visit once many, many years ago. But, but what do you believe has happened to Zimbabwe? How do you see Zimbabwe and where it is today and what its, what its journey has been over the last 20 years? I mean, we have gone through um, a really um, big evolution, if you will. You know, I was born during my country's revolution, right? The struggle to liberate our country from British colonial rule. So I also experienced a lot of turmoil with that. You know, my own Gogo was a freedom fighter, like most women in our village. So I knew kind of the, the pressure of what we all felt as Africans being discriminated in our own country because of the color of our skin. And it was a really tough moment. Um, but at the age of six, actually, my, it was 1980, my country was liberated. We got our independence. And I then also learned a very important lesson for my gogo, which is this idea of an African philosophy called Ubuntu, which literally means I am because we are right? Ubuntu is this recognition that we are all connected by our shared humanity, no matter what you may believe, right? There's this common bond that connects us. And that understanding also brings the awareness that if one one of us, if something impacts one of us, it will eventually impact all of us. It's also why we greeted our, you know, each other with I am well as long as you are well, right? So I realized when she was explaining to me that, oh, I'd already know, I knew what Ubuntu looked like. I might have not known the word, but I knew what it was. But I tell you this because it was a really important moment for us as a country. You know, because of British colonial rule, one tactic that colonialism used as a means to control the majority African population was this deliberate separation of us into different groups and tribes, right? And they gave us different rights. And these rights were meant to pit us against each other so that whilst we're fighting amongst ourselves, they would continue to rule over all of us. So Zimbabwe, when I was growing up, we had this key moment. What were we going to do? We're finally free. We could do what we've always wanted to do, to own our land, to be in charge. But there was... Also, this whole division that had happened amongst the two big tribes, the Shon and the Debeles, and because of colonial uh, policies. But we actually found a way to put those differences aside. I mean, there was a war that broke up right after independence between the two tribes, but we embraced our Ubuntu. We came together. We realized that we were actually going to make a conscious decision, and that's the tough decision, right, to forgive the colonizers and work alongside them. We could retaliate or could forgive them. So we did all that, and that's how we were able to rebuild as a country. And so you ask me what has happened. A lot has happened. A lot of that has to do with the, you know, the, the, oh, the side effects of colonialism and what it did for our people. But of course, we've also had, like most countries, including here in the US, some leadership challenges along the way. And 
you know, as a political scientist, it is heartbreaking to see what's happened to my own country. I remain optimistic that we have to be part of creating the change, which is why I'm a political scientist. And if we want to create this change, then it's up to all of us. You know, we can't wait for someone else to do that. And I remain optimistic that my country will bounce back, just like we are hoping that America will bounce back. Elizabeth, what did you think of Mugabe, who was uh, an important leader in the independence of the country, uh, led the country for many, many years until relatively recently and passed away also uh, relatively recently in his 90s, I think. What, what, how, do you, how do you judge him? Because I, I remember hearing his name in the 80s originally in a more laudatory way. But as we got into the 90s and 2000s, I would hear stronger criticism of him, including from people uh, like former Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, but how did you think about uh, uh, Mugabe? I mean, given my role as a UN uh, diplomat, I certainly cannot make a comment on Zimbabwe in particular and, and the leadership. I think all I can say is that we are seeing more and more that there is a need for a different kind of leadership in, in all countries around the world. Um, I think the Mugabe era has ended and we need to, I think, look forward and see what this means for our country. Uh, and I think there's lots of opportunities, you know, even just looking at the African continent, we have the youngest youth population in the world right now, soon to become the largest youth population in the world. I see that as potential and hope for the continent. And I think that transition and that, you know, evolution in terms of how we want to be governed and making sure that the young generation is also playing a big part, I think will be quite important for the continent. Elizabeth, who are three, for people who don't pay close attention to African politics, but want to start paying attention for so many different reasons, who are three or four of, of the leaders on the continent today that you think are up and comers or people should know about? Whether you support them or not, you just think that they're worthy of, of, of knowing about them. Ooh, that's a, that's a very difficult question to answer, right? Because I think there's different aspects to different leadership on the continent, and I think it depends what you're looking for. Um, I, I would feel uncomfortable, you know, pinpointing certain people, but I can talk about, you know, the fact that 10 of the fastest growing economies are on the African continent. I think there are leaders that are getting this right. And in particular, even just looking at the current COVID pandemic, where most people in the West they had literally dismissed Africa and said, it's going to be a disaster for the African continent. But we saw strong leadership emerge, even much more than we saw in countries, in the developed countries, including the US. And so I think, you know, we, we are also a continent that is often quick to be judged uh, when people don't realize that there is this whole legacy of colonialism and these policies that continue to pit Africans against each other, that continue to look for ways to divide us. And I think we have to, I think we have to be the cheer, I have to be the cheerleader of my continent and say, you know, there is so much great coming out of the African continent, whether that's the way we're responding to pandemics like COVID uh, or the way that, you know, we are building our economies where we know that there is a, you know, a rising middle class happening uh, in most parts of, of the African continent. And so looking at individual policies versus looking at politician, 
um, is, is the way that I like to look at the continent. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Elizabeth, how do you think about um, the question of hunger? I know you shared that that's something that's animated you um, or, and certainly was a part of your life, and, and you shared what happened when, when you were eight. Um, but you've also been spending a lot of time about on that as a professional. In some ways, I, would, I, would, I guess I would kind of hope that we'd be in a better space on question of hunger, that, that um, uh, food is more plentiful, there's more advanced forms of agriculture and of, of food preparation, that there's better transportation. And I guess I would hope that, that there would be less hunger. Is that, is that right? Have we made progress on the question of hunger? It, it is. I mean, as you say, it's one of the most puzzling things, Carlos. Hunger is still the number one cause of death in the world. Every five seconds, a child dies from hunger. And yet, here's the reality. We actually, as a society, grow enough food to feed everyone, right? And we are also wasting enough food to feed, you know. So right now, there's at least 700 million people who go to bed hungry every single night. And that number in the U.S., we also know the Biden administration just did a, a study. I think one in nine American families don't even know where their next meal is going to come from. And yet we are also at the same time wasting enough food. We're throwing away enough food to feed 2 billion people, which is like double the amount of people that are going hungry. So there is a lot that needs to happen. I think an awareness that 
indeed, you know, this issue of hunger, it is not a them versus us. Part of the reason why we don't have enough food is because those who have enough food are wasting that food. Uh, the second thing is that we have broken food systems and food systems literally speaks to the way that the food travels from farm into our kitchens, right? And we know, for example, here in the US that lots of in, you know, low income communities don't even have a supermarket where they can access fresh food and vegetables. And yet at the same time, they are flooded with fast food restaurants, which offer very, you know, less nutritious food. And so we are also seeing this become a health, uh, a, a health uh, crisis with obesity, with high blood pressure, with diabetes, with heart disease. Uh, so it is fundamentally an issue of inequality when we talk about, about, about hunger. Why do you think that is? That is that is so interesting. And I think you're right that you do see in lots of parts of the world that there is this swarm of fast food restaurants. Why fast food restaurants instead of grocery stores? Is it that the fast food restaurants are more popular and more profitable? Or why do you think that is? But it all comes down, like most inequalities, Carlos, it all comes down to power. Who is making the decision, right? Who has the power? How do they use the power? to make decisions and in, in what way and for whose benefit. We know, for example, that there's the voices of minorities in most countries, uh, the voices of women are not heard at the decision-making level. Our governments do not have the diversity that they need in order to make decisions that reflect the needs of the underserved communities. And so it all comes down to the planning, you know, the, their policies, its structure and systematic issues. People get to decide where supermarkets should be. Um, investors get to decide where they want to sell, you know, where they want to set up their stores. And we often find that the underserved communities, the low income communities are completely uh, ignored in this process. And so I was watching a really wonderful documentary done by The Guardian and, and Michelle Obama was, was one of the interviewees. And you know, she was talking about even the issue of food deserts. There's 23 million Americans right now living in what we call food deserts, which is literally a place where there is no supermarket within like 10 miles from where you live. And the communities don't have cars. And they were talking about how I have to take a bus for three hours to find the nearest supermarket. And so it's difficult for me to eat healthy even if I wanted to. Uh, and the investors don't want to put a supermarket where I live. And so again, it's making sure that we have representation at the policy making level. As you think about your role right now at the UN, describe a little bit of, of how you're spending your time and what you're involved in. So the biggest issue right now for us is really trying to make sure that we're addressing the needs of so many communities who have now are even more hungrier than they were before the pandemic. It's, it's important to point out that before the pandemic, the world wasn't equal anyway, Carlos. You know, we live in a society right now where more than 730 million people globally live on less than $2 a day, yet 26 of the richest people in the world own as much wealth as half of the world's population, right? In a similar way, when it comes to hunger, 
you know, the issue was still dire, but it's become even more because of the current COVID pandemic. We have more people going hungry. We have more people dying from starvation. And so one of our big focus right now is to figure out quick solutions to make sure that that doesn't happen. And in September this year, the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres is hosting for the very first time a food system summit in New York where it's, we're calling the People Summit. We want everyone, citizens, youth, uh, companies, governments to all come together with some quick solutions that we can all use to make sure that our food systems, the way that we bring food from farm to kitchen is equitable, right? So that nobody ever has to die from lack of, of food. As you think about the world that is possible over the next five, 10 years, what do you hope is true? Are you are you hopeful that this can change dramatically? Because when I think about our abilities around everything from Uber to DoorDash, from, you know, sending uh, random billionaires up into space to to what have you, you would think that we have enough ability to solve the solve this food crisis. Do you believe that can actually happen over the next five years, maybe over the next 10 years? Or are we likely to be having a similar conversation at the time? I think that's the decision that we all have to make as a collective, right? Because nothing is going to change if we continue with business as usual. You know, I see the pandemic, which has been really, really devastating. But I also see this as an opportunity for what I'm calling the great reset, right? And so part of the work right now, Carlos, is to raise awareness of these issues raise awareness of these inequalities, but also to show people what they can do, right? It's also partly the reason why I wrote my book at this, at this, uh, um, um, at this time, at this moment in time, because I realized at some point that, you know, I am only one individual, but I do have a powerful story. And that powerful story is if a once malnourished girl from Africa can make a small contribution to the world, Imagine the power that we all have as a collective to actually create more societies that are equal and more just and more sustainable. But it's going to be the tough choice. It's going to require the collective conscious for us to be able to do this. As you said, you know, it can't be just humanitarians doing this work. You know, we all can look around our own communities and say, what is the one thing that I can do to uplift the lives of those around me? Do you think enough people, Elizabeth, and I realize this is a tough question, but do you think enough people actually really care? I mean, I know you talked about Ubuntu, mm-hmm. but but is the truth that most people, or at least most of those in the countries with resources, aren't as concerned with Ubuntu, or at least haven't embraced that? And so consequently, while there may be the ability to solve it, they don't really care. So it's a yes and, right? Yes, there are some people who are never going to care about what happens to somebody else. But I've also found, you know, as I've gone around during the book tour speaking to people, that a lot of people just aren't aware. They aren't aware, you know, they've been born with a certain level of privilege. They live, again, in a bubble within their own community, and they aren't aware of the issues impacting uh, other people. In in some cases, they don't even know that they can play a role in that. And so... Part of the work, you know, for us as humanitarians is to actually try and raise that awareness. I would, I would agree with you that I think the spirit of Ubuntu is a very foreign concept to most people in the West, right? In 
African cultures, it's core to who we are and how we are raised, but it's, it's, a, it's a new concept, you know, but I'm also hopeful that this pandemic, as devastating as it has, it has now shown people what we as Africans have always known, that we are connected by our shared humanity that what impacts one part of the world can indeed impact all of us. That as long as I am unwell, then none of us are unwell, right? Because we know, even now we know that when I wear a mask, I'm not wearing it for myself, I'm wearing it for you as well. So I'm hoping that this has created a bit of a click moment so that this message of the collective is not something that we're still arguing about. And fundamentally, and that's the hard reality, no one is going to be truly equal until we're all equal. In a similar way, no one will ever be truly free until we're all free. And so when we continue to look at these issues, whether that's race or even hunger, is it them versus us? We're just making a huge mistake. We're making a huge mistake. Mm, I hope you're right that we can think about that in a broader and different way. And, and sometimes maybe it takes... Uh, leadership, uh, uh, in part, uh, not even just political leadership, but religious leadership, moral leadership, um, uh, teachers, others. Um, Elizabeth, do you mind if I do a little bit of rapid fire with you? May I, may I try a variety of questions with you? Let's do it. Okay. Other than your own book, what's your favorite book of all time? Things Fall Apart, Shino Achebe. Oh my goodness. Not bad at all. Your favorite movie of all time? Ah, this one is tough. Damn it. Damn it, Carlos. I'm letting you down on this. Just get That's my favorite movie all time. Never thought about this. I don't know if I have one. Okay, fair enough. That's okay. That's okay if you do not. Um, Elizabeth, what is your karaoke song? I Will Survive. <laughs> I love that. Gloria Gaynor. If you could have dinner with anyone, dead or alive, who would you love to have dinner with? Nelson Mandela. Mandela, Madiba, if, if I gave you one do-over in this life, what would you use it on? Same thing, humanitarian, choose it over again. Biggest mistake you feel like you've ever made in this life? Doubting God's intent. Most interesting thing you've learned about love? It's the, ah, that's a powerful one, actually. Um, it's, it's the most powerful feeling and emotion you can ever experience. What brings you peace? My family. When was the last time you were afraid? COVID pandemic, beginning of it. If you were able to live another 50 years, what would you love to be true about how you use that time? What would you like to do? Create more impact in the world. If I asked you about your heroes uh, who are alive today, I know you mentioned Mandela. Who are some of your heroes who are alive today? My mother. She's still alive as we speak. What is her name? Rosemary. Rosemary. And where does she live? In Arare. In Arare. Um, what two African countries should we keep an eye on? Ghana and Zimbabwe. Interesting. Why did you say Ghana? Why did you say Zimbabwe? Because Ghana is becoming the tech hub of Africa. Even Google set up an a artificial intelligence hub there. And so a lot of technology coming out of Africa, people often think of Kenya when it, when it comes to tech. So Ghana is it's where it's at right now. Zimbabwe, because it's my country, because I think great things are coming for my country. 
if you had a recommendation for the U.S., if the U.S. was going to do a new constitutional convention, uh, uh, if it said our first 250 years is what it was, now we're going to think not just about the next year or two, but the next 250 years, we're going to bring everyone together again. We'll have a constitutional convention. It won't just have Washington and Jefferson and Hamilton, but it'll have Coates and Lakshmi and uh, Guerrera and, and others. What would you recommend if you were at the Constitutional Convention? What, what idea would you put forth to be considered to help guide America's next 250 years? That all human beings must be equal. And I think part of the challenge is that, you know, the Constitution, back to the issue of power, it was mostly white men who had, you know, a certain level of privilege because of who they are. We missed a lot of diverse voices in the formulation of the Constitution. As a result, we have all this inequality. So making sure that we get the diversity right at the beginning, including gender and race, is key. Um, Liz, what is the most interesting thing you've learned about dreaming fearlessly in this life? That a dream, when you dream big and you make it a dream for others, you have much more fulfillment in your life. Interesting. That I wonder... I wonder around the world if if most people are able to dream not just for themselves, but for others. So that was actually another important uh, lesson, Carlos, for my grandmother. So this idea of Ubuntu, this shared humanity, there's also the way that you dream through the Ubuntu lens. And she explained to me, in fact, this is why I became a humanitarian, right? She said, when you dream through the Ubuntu lens, you have to dream a dream for others. You must dare to dream a dream for others. And that's such a powerful concept because my dream almost became a near impossible task. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. And I could have given up so many times, but I constantly reminded myself that this dream was bigger than just for myself because me becoming a humanitarian also meant that I would be able to uplift the lives of my community, my country, my continent, and hopefully one day the world. So it's a really, really powerful idea. And I wish more people would do that. How much time have you spent? I really like, as you say that, and I think that that is a big, important challenge as to whether or not we can, you know, uh, our dreams can be not about ourselves or even about our own children, but whether or not it can be about a larger community and a larger society. And I, I wonder that as, as to whether more of that is, is possible and, and what that looks like and, uh, and how that could play out. Um, let me take you somewhere else in the continent, if I may. I've always been taken a little bit heartbroken in many ways by what's happened in the Congo and, and particularly to some extent around the rape crisis there. Have you spent time in the Congo and what have you learned about that at all and about our ability to bring that to an end? Yes, it is devastating. I mean, as a gender expert, you know, we've spent a lot of time trying to look for ways to solve the issue. Again, it is important, and I, I repeat myself all the time about this, that when we look at countries like the Congo as well, we have to understand that in addition to what is happening on a day-to-day -day basis, there are major, major legacies of colonial policies that have constantly, and up until today, continuously tried to divide people. But the issue of race is really an issue of gender inequality, right? 
one of the big things that I, I implemented when I was at the United Nations, uh, the UN Women, when I was working on gender specifically, was launching this movement called the He For She movement, which invited men and boys to be part of the solution. Because I realized at some point that it was quite unfair that we put all the responsibility on women and girls not to get raped, rather than actually just engage the men who are raping the women to not rape the women. And so again, it was through this Ubuntu lens that I realized because of our shared humanity, we have to have a shared responsibility on ending this issue. And that's an important aspect to this. It, to my surprise, to my colleague's surprise, I think initially there was a bit of hesitation that, first of all, it was controversial because some traditional feminists said, why are you engaging men? They are the problem. Uh, and then there was also the other voices that said, men won't care about this thing. They just won't join. And to our surprise, we launched this He For She movement and literally within three days, at least one man in every single country in the world had joined He For She. And within that one week, there was 1.2 billion, billion, not million, conversations for men around the world. And from it just reaffirmed to me that this call for solidarity, because Ubuntu at its core, is also about this idea of solidarity and allyship. And you could put the same formula to race. Right now, we see African-Americans, we are the only ones advocating to end racism. What is needed is allyship. MLK Jr. said the same thing. Mandela said the same thing. Ubuntu says the same thing. So how we solve for rape in the Congo and in any other part of the world, which also it's important to note that the, the rate of violence against women is one in three in every single country in the world. So... How we solve for it, we need male allyship. We need men to be part of the conversation. And we cannot create a world in which young girls fear men because I also know that there's, if he or she is any, any indication, is that there's a lot more good men out there who want to do the right thing. We just have to have the dialogue. We have to invite them in as equal partners into solving for this. Um, Elizabeth, I, I, as the brother of three sisters, I... Uh, uh, I think you were right, and I wonder um, about the opportunity to do it. You're making me think about more. Uh, de Tocqueville, a Frenchman who visited the U.S., used to talk about the ways in which the U.S. and the U.S. communities would gather, whether it was in churches or town halls or what have you. And I guess a part of me is wondering if there's as much gathering going on today as maybe there once was, and if a return to gathering, obviously in a safe way at safe times, actually could be a part of, of, of giving people more of a shared sense of, um, of, of responsibility and possibility. And maybe our schools, to some extent, um, could facilitate some of that or are facilitating maybe, maybe even more ways than I know. Yeah, but I mean, that's the important thing, Carlos, that's missing. You know, when we look at all these inequalities, we constantly like isolate ourselves, right? Then it becomes a them versus us. We need the space for dialogue. We need to constantly remind us that what we share is much more powerful than what divides us. Even if we are starting with the basic thing of that we are all shared, connected by our shared humanity, but without this dialogue, it's never going to end, right? We are always going to have the oppressed constantly doing all the hard work. If the oppressors are not engaged, if they are not part of the dialogue, even if they might say the wrong things, we actually need to get them 
in the same room, around the same table, and for them to also understand our pain points and where, where that's coming from. But if we then say it's them versus us, we're not going to engage with them, then we just end up where we are. Yeah, it, it's, um, uh, you're making me think about the end of the uh, Spike Lee uh, film about uh, Malcolm X and uh, they talked about an eye for an eye. Um, Elizabeth, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave it there, but thank you so much for, uh, for joining me. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Carlos. This was really lovely. And uh, I hope I can see you in person someday in the future when things open up. I would love that. I, uh, I feel like I'm building up my Zim circle a little bit. Um, I've gotten to know <laughs> Denai Guerrera. I don't know if you have met Denai before. Yes. And, yes. And um, have you met James Manika? Do you know James? Who? Uh, no, I don't. I don't know James at all. Who's wonderful? I, maybe I can find a way to introduce you. He works at McKinsey at the Global Institute, and uh, ah. um, is is a very thoughtful uh, economist and a good person. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much, Carlos, for having me, and I wish you all the best. And please stay safe. Yes, you too. You too. Have a very very nice weekend. You too. Bye. Okay. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends to find us on the iHeart Podcast app or Apple Podcasts. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.